Let me apologise for uh, uh, messing up the timing yesterday. Take my watch out today to pretend I'm going to do any better. Uh, um, I apologise for it because I'd set it out that the most important passage was coming towards the end and then I ran out of time. So that little passage in 2.11 to 14 is a key passage to the book which I charge past at great speed and if I now take time going through it then we'll run over time for chapter 3. So I just want to draw your attention to it again because grace appeared. Uh, his mercy and generous forgiveness of God appeared in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that was proclaimed by the apostles. The grace was freely given as we repent and believe as we trust in the Lord. And then in 2 verse 12, we're told that grace trains us who have already renounced ungodliness and worldly passions. That is, we're already Christians. Grace trains us in the present and for the future. For in the present, it's personal, it's social, and it's religious. It trains us in self-control, that key word that keeps coming through Titus, that that living under wisdom. I wish we had another word. I wish we actually uh, had Tyndale alive because Tyndale was a great one for making up new English words to translate the Bible with. And we need him on a whole host of words at the moment, hope, faith, uh, love, uh, self-control there's a whole string of words which you've got to get rid of out of modern English because it doesn't mean in modern English what the Bible means anymore so we're, we're talking gobbledygook to our contemporaries and we need a Tyndale to reinvent but self-control is one of those words godliness is another one which is right here too but personal we it's grace trains us as persons in our own character it trains us to live under wisdom It trains us socially to live justly and righteously, just in the way in which I treat my neighbours in the home units I live, that it will train me to be the person who's concerned for the fairness, the justice, the, the, the righteousness with which we can relate to each other. And it trains us religiously, that is, by godliness, this great mystery of the gospel. It trains us that we relate to God on the basis of the gospel by which he is related to us. All as we wait for the future, the appearing in glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, the Cretans profess to know God, but they deny him, chapter 1, verse 16, by their works. We must profess to know God and profess by our works as well that we know him. Because this grace is now training us to be different. And that's where we turn to in chapter 3 because Titus is to address the problems uh, in Crete by appointing elders who will teach the apostolic gospel and oppose those who teach otherwise, teaching what is fitting to sound doctrine, which is Christ's plan to redeem for himself this people, this group, this, this people who will be zealots for good works. And so that's why his grace will be training us to be the people for whom he has died, training us to be those who are passionate about doing good, not just doing good, passionate about doing good. It's it's our fetish, the lawyer's fetish, the Pharisee's fetish was was the minutiae of the law. Uh, uh, Others have a fetish for, for worship, 
songs and music and for liturgy and for our fetish is good works. That's that's where our fetish is to be. And it involves the great reversal. Point one. The reversal from insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, chapter 1, verse 10, especially of the circumcision, into zealots for good works, who in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, will be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. What a shift from the Cretans who are insubordinate to the Christians who are submissive. It's a great reversal. Of old, the people of Crete were notorious as chapter 112, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, characterised by insubordination in verse 10 of chapter 1. Like so many people, sinful people in any age and in any land, we don't want anarchy, but we don't want to be ruled over. We, we, we wouldn't mind ruling ourselves, really. And so insubordination is a normal trend of those who have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and who now are determining what is good and evil for them and for everybody else. So when you mention submissiveness, immediately people's backs get up, uh, particularly at this moment on the subject of wives being submissive to their husbands. You only have to read it at a wedding in a church and you can see the non-Christians arcing up ready for a fight at a debate on the issue. It is one of the dirty words of our sinful generation. But we are now to be new people. Christ's zealots for good works. And submission is for us a spiritual normality. As indeed it is for society. No society is going to work without submission of people to each other. Why, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself the ruler of the universe, the creator of all, even he submitted himself to his earthly parents and said that he would, you'll find in Luke, and he also said that we should give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He submitted himself to the governing authorities. Our zeal for good works should make us always ready for every good work. After all, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's not just in principle, but also in detail. As you have some concrete illustrations in verse 2 there, to, to speak no evil of, to, of, of one, uh, sorry, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. There is a change that we have to have. But these illustrations are actually, they're directly connected to our own past life, our own great reversal through the gospel. For, verse 3, or because, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How can I criticise or judge any sinner? How can, I, how can I speak evil of someone? And how can I, how can I go on quarrelling? When I myself had the very same things, I was doing the same practices. The kind of lifestyle of Crete was and is everybody's lifestyle. Now, some of us were converted 
very young. Some of us were, in fact, raised in Christian families and never know a moment of conversion. And we need to be reminded of what we would be but for the grace of God. Some of us, we lived exactly this life and this is this is describing what has happened to us. The first generation Christian grasps it with an immediacy because he's been through it. The second generation Christian can sometimes underestimate the power of what their parents have done for them in raising them in in chapter 3 verse 1 rather than in chapter 3 verse 3. But the basic reason for our morality is lack of opportunity. Lack of opportunity for our sinful nature to express itself properly. See, power does not corrupt. And absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. We've, we've already corrupt because of Adam. Power gives us the capacity to express our corruption properly and fully. If absolute power corrupts absolutely, then God must be corrupt, for he has absolute power. The problem is not power. The problem is sin. I wish Christians would believe their own gospel and not by the latest trend of worldly thinking. There's nothing wrong with power. There is something wrong with the human heart with whom you therefore can't trust power. But the problems in the heart and sin, given the right circumstances, pressure, advice, help, power, there is no evil that we're incapable of descending into. Double negative again. Every evil is available to us and we're likely to do it. The government, even the Roman emperor, protects society from itself as an agent of God for our good to punish evildoers and restrict our sinfulness. But when the government becomes really corrupt, then the government can get people to do dreadful things, unimaginable things for Christians, unimaginable things you would hope for humanity. Think of the genocides of the 20th century, Rwanda or Armenia, or the gulags, or the final solution, or Pol Pot, or the sack of Nanking. The, the 20th century has just been one massacre of one people after another, after another, after another, all over the world. People have been massacred. And you think, who does all this massacring? People just like you, and people just like me, <laughs> except for the gospel of God. Sin is really very profound within us. Lack of opportunity, lack of pressure, lack of situation, lack of power prevents us from expressing our sinfulness properly. Uh, Tiger Woods, Bill Clinton, both asked why they did what they did and they said, because I was able to. When you have enough power, you do what you, by nature, sinful nature, will do. The problem is not the power. The problem is the sinful nature. But in the gospel, we see God at work. 
changing us, removing the works of the flesh by producing the fruit of the Spirit within us so that we no longer live under our father Adam. We no longer live under our father Satan. We no longer live like verse 3, for God has intervened, intervened in our lives. And so verse 4 starts with the word but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared. Here again we see the word appeared. Something happened in history. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation in the preaching of the gospel of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in 3, 4, it's the goodness and loving kindness of God that has appeared. We must never tire of seeing how the goodness and loving kindness of God is. We must never tire of seeing it. We must never tire of hearing about it. We must never tire of preaching it. And we see it when and where it appeared in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his atoning death on the cross, in his resurrection, and in the gospel that we've heard and the gospel we must preach. For when it appeared, he saved us. Sadly, 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 the world does not, need, does not know it needs saving. These Growing percentages of people that we heard of today, they do not know their own need of salvation. If they recognise anything to be saved from, they see it as being saved from powerful people, from politicians or from the wealthy or from police states or white males or drunken husbands or, or fathers or or saved from religion and religious institutions. They don't need, know that they need to be saved from themselves. They need to be saved from their own sinfulness. They need to be saved from Satan and his domain. They need to be saved from God's judgment and hell. Verse 3 is their normality. Verse 2 is for them an extremist horror. Notice what Titus 3 says about our salvation. Firstly, it's not. It's not because of our good works or of our righteous deeds. How many Australians are deceived in this way? Over and over again, I find people thinking that God if there is one, will look kindly upon them because deep down they're good people. If there is one subject that keeps people out of the gospel in Australia, it is the doctrine of salvation by good works. That is the apologetic question we must address over and over and over again. For our society is a deeply moralistic society who believes if you're good, you'll be rewarded. If you're bad, you'll be punished. And basically, we're all good people. It's still the abiding deception of Australia that good people go to heaven and that religion is about being good. Some years ago in England, I ran a, uh, in Southampton, we ran a, a, a dinner on the subject and the title was Why Good People Go to Hell and the only people who go to heaven are bad people. 
The printer, when we picked up the advertisements, was so thrilled that he found our printing mistake <laughs> and corrected it for us. <laughs> he, was, he was really chuffed. He was so excited. It was a very difficult uh, conversation <laughs> and, and a very expensive reprint that had to happen of all our advertisements. But it's just unbelievable what we're saying. It is totally unacceptable. They think it is good people. I had breakfast at a bread and breakfast over in uh, Margaret River last, uh, uh, last week. I think it was last week, yes. Um, that was a fascinating conversation. It was all about page two in Two Ways to Live. That is about sin and about the nature of corruption. I was suggesting to the, the people that were there, lovely, lovely three or four people at the breakfast table, that uh, the reason that there's not more evil in the world is just lack of opportunity, that we're all deeply evil. This was an appalling concept to them, and they argued with me and reasoned with me for a while until they finally got beaten down into some form of submission on this subject. <laughs> but they, they really found it unacceptable, impossible, I pointed out, well, have you told lies? And Yes. Well, then we're all liars at this table, aren't we? No. Well, let's run through this again, shall we? Well, I mean, what? You see, why is it that everybody tells lies if everybody's truthful deep down? It, the evidence is overwhelming. If this group wants scientific evidence, the scientific evidence for human sinfulness and its universality is patently clear. It can be found anywhere in the world. And the only hypothesis I know that's going that all people are evil is really the Bible's prophecy. We caught the taxi driver, the taxi driver that I mentioned to you the other day, the Buddhist, you see. He, he said being a Buddhist wasn't... What really mattered was being good. And he was, he was good. That's all that mattered. It reminded me of another taxi driver. I was in a taxi once with Archie Poulos and Cole Marshall... And Cole Marshall was in the front, Archie and I were in the back. We were praying because Cole was evangelising the taxi driver. And uh, if you've ever heard Cole Marshall doing one-to-one evangelism, he's a great master. It was a beautiful conversation. It wasn't rude, difficult or obstreperous like me. He was gently leading this taxi driver further and further into the truths of the gospel. It was really fantastic to see and to hear. And, and Archie and I were busy praying. And the taxi driver in the end was saying, well, look... Good people will be saved, and I'm a good man. I've never hurt anybody in life, which really is... Un- I mean, he's a taxi driver. Come on, never hurt anybody in life. It just was... But he stuck to his guns on this point. The next week, uh, Archie and Colin and I were connected up on a phone call. I can't remember who found it, because the very taxi driver, he gave his name to Cole to follow him up, etc., Cole's good at getting names from people and the rest. But the very man was actually caught by the police because he was actually a drug pusher. He'd never hurt anybody. He was a good person. Every underworld funeral, you'll have people hopping up and saying, but he was a good family man. In other words, he killed other people, he robbed other people, he put other people into prostitution, he sold drugs to other people, but he used all the profits to look after his children. So he was a good family man, wasn't he? So deep down, he's good. Because family is what matters, and he's good, and he's a good family man. 
We're saved, but it's not because we are good. In fact, if we were good, we wouldn't need to be saved. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sin. That's the bit I contribute. Everything else God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've made my contribution, I may say, quite adequately. (laughs) While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm labouring the point, my brothers and sisters, because I want you to labour the point in your preaching and teaching to Australians because they don't get it. They just can't understand this. Verse 5, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, I love the word but. Uh, There's a couple of Greek words for but. This is Allah. This is the big but. I, I am annoyed I think you've gathered I get annoyed by our translators. They are doing the work of preachers instead of letting the preachers have what's in the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11 is a terrific verse which they mistranslate. Uh, It is profoundly mistranslated, I think, in almost most translations. I haven't checked all lately. Holman might have got it right. And, you know, it talks about all the sin that would exclude you from the kingdom of heaven. And then it concludes, and such were some of you... But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You don't need the word but three times. But you don't need the word but three times in English, in Greek either. The reason it's there three times in Greek is emphasis. You translate without the emphasis, you're not translating properly. But, 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 I was this, but, I was that, but, what God has done has radically, dramatically reversed me and everything about our lives. But, but, but is really important. We're not saved because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, goodness and loving kindness. His mercy on sinful people. I don't need moralists. I, that's, I don't need morals. I need mercy. I need transformation. I need regeneration. That's what I need. If I do not understand that need, I will not turn to the Saviour and be saved. Ezekiel 36. Please turn it up for me. Ezekiel 36. It's one of the most important Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 36. In the days of telephones, I'm never sure if people are turning things up. In the days of Bibles, you knew because you heard the papers rattling. Thank you. Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 25, 26, 27. This is where God is promising the new age. It's going to go on into chapter 37 with the resurrection, the valley of dry bones, that passage. Ezekiel 36, verse 20, 
uh, where am I picking up? Verse 25, where God promises, I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is what came in the appearance of grace. For by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, bringing me what I needed. Washing, cleansing, verse 25 there, regeneration and renewal. That's what was promised in the Old Testament would come with the coming of the Holy Spirit, with the coming of the kingdom, with the coming of the new age, with the coming of the resurrection. That's what was promised. And that's what came. That's what poor old Nicodemus didn't understand. You must be born again. He didn't get it. Because although he's a teacher of Israel, he missed the lessons on Ezekiel 36. For it's as clear as a bell there what is to happen. Because of our humility and our known failures, we Christians don't pay sufficient attention to how much God has done in changing human hearts, in changing Christians in their behaviour. We're living in, a, in our bubble, as we say today, that shields us from those around about us. We don't live in the world of the drunk and the drug addict. Lovely to hear about the, the group that's uh, starting up in Taree and Yes, well, this is our recording, so I won't repeat what was said, but it's great to hear. You see, we've got to live in the real world where people are in real trouble. That's the world that's out there. But we Christians live in a world where I don't hear people swear. I can go for weeks without hearing a swear word. Just turn the television off. It's as simple as that, because I live with Christians all the time. And we don't swear, we're not vulgar, we don't say rude things and inappropriate things like this. I, I, I was sitting down at this bed and breakfast, there was this lovely retired policeman there. Uh, as soon as he found us a clergyman, he tried to clean his language up, uh, but he couldn't control himself because I got him on really hot topics that he was interested in. And there was just a flow of expletives, he just came all, that was just his normal language. But I had just moved into a different language group. The whole range of words which from day to day, week to week, I will never hear, which he was using sentence by sentence. It was like I'd just moved in talking French. It was, unfortunately, I can't understand French. I could understand him. I used to compare, because I had students comparing it for me, the National University Championships with Mid-Year Conference because they happened one week after another in the days in which I was running the Mid-Year Conferences. And so I'd have the sporty uh, students who had been away for a week at the National Com Championships coming to Mid-Year Conference. And they commented to me over and over again how a thousand students away at the National Sports Conferences was all about hitting upon each other, about drug using, about alcohol, getting drunk. As soon as they'd finished their game, they, they were often in the, as getting drunk as skunks, etc., and hitting upon each other sexually and abusing each other. And then you come to Mid-Year Conference and no one's doing any of those kinds of things. In fact, they're sitting around talking sensibly and reasonably about the deep and meaningful things of life. It was like they'd walked from one world to another world, and they had. 
They'd walk from the world of Adam to the world of Christ. They'd walk through the regenerative processes that has taken place in the hearts. We're not perfect, but we're saved. We're not the same, but changed. And that is why it is, it is so terrible is the moral failure of any Christian, especially a leader of God's people. For amongst other problems that it creates, and when a leader fails, the problems are massive and take years to recover. Amongst other problems, it questions the very efficacy of regeneration. It questions the very claim of the gospel. You claim to be a new man in Christ Jesus and you're just like the old man. What makes you think your claim has any truth at all in this gospel? Jesus hasn't changed you because Jesus can't change. Can you not hear Satan's voice? The lie of the accuser. Notice how this wonderful gospel passage finishes in verse 7. So that, here's the result, or better, it's actually purpose, it's a hina construction. So that being justified by grace, by mercy, we may be heirs of eternal life in accordance with the hope, the expectation that is ours. We do not live without an assurance of the future, but have the expectation of eternal life, which is why we can face death when our society cannot face death. Our society is built on everlasting youth, hiding every sign of age, of sickness, of death. Paul then use, addresses Titus at work. The saying is trustworthy. I'm not quite sure what the saying is. Verse 7, verse 4 to 7. That saying, though, that section is, is faithful. Titus must insist on these things. The verb here means must speak confidently of these things, assured of these things, certain of these things, insisting upon stressing these things. Brothers, never get tired of preaching the mercy of God in the washing regeneration by the spirit of our risen saviour. If your sermons are not preaching it over and over again, you are really failing in your responsibilities because it's out of this grace that we are trained to live as Christians. That's where it comes from. It's not new rules and regulations. That's not where it comes from. It comes from the changed heart that knows the grace of God which has changed our hearts and is trained by that grace of God to live differently. Therefore, we've got to keep on teaching our people of the grace of God. Never get tired of preaching it. Never get tired of hearing it. Never get tired of living by it. But here, Titus is to insist on it, verse 8, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's two things you say. They're right and they're util utility. Utilitarianism is not wrong. It's just inadequate. If the only reason for doing something is because it has good effects, that's inadequate. You've got to do it because it's right and good and true and excellent. But that which is right and good and true and excellent is profitable. God who created. So there's three levels of ethical commands. One, God says. Two, it's right. Three, it works. That's because our God who creates what is right is the one who created the world that works by righteousness. 
Salvation is the basis of our morality and ethics. It's the grace that appeared which trains the regenerate to live personally under wisdom, socially in justice, and with God in godliness of the gospel. And we live in this age as we wait. We're always looking forward to the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in all his glory. And so we have to keep insisting on the gospel to motivate and teach people right living now. It's not by the law, but by grace that we live by the law. We don't live by the law, we live by grace. But if you live by grace, that is the way you live by the law. For Ezekiel 36, he's going to write the law in our hearts. The old law used to be on the tablets of stone. The new law is going to be written on our hearts. But the new law is the old law. It's the same law. It's now just put in a different place. And the old law was written on stone and we weren't interested in it. But the new law written on our hearts and the spirit moves us to keep it. The change between the old and the new is not the law. The change between the old and the new is the person is us, is the work of the Spirit regenerating our people to do that which God wishes us to do. It's by the grace of the gospel that we become Christ's people, zealot for good works because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And in this insistence on the gospel truths, Titus is to avoid silly, stupid, unprofitable controversies. I mean, we all come across them. The internet's full of them. Debates over the minutiae that uh, really don't matter, that even if we could settle them, would not lead to any greater godliness in people. Forget it. Irrelevance. And so he is also to reject the divisive person in verse 10. And not straight away, always warn, give opportunity, repent. Indeed, warn them a second time, he says. But when they will not repent... And they insist upon their own way, let them go. For their problem is deep within themselves, warped and sinful and self-contemned. We, we can only wonder, for there's no explicit evidence, whether Paul is here referring to the legalistic uh, circumcision party. For it's the legalists of Romans 2 who have passed judgment on others and yet are guilty of the same things themselves and so are self-condemning. They've forgotten the kindness of God is meant is to lead us to repentance. But in contrast to such divisive people, he speaks of Christians at work. The company of fellow workers, Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, Apollos, travelling the Mediterranean mission field, bringing the sweet aroma of the gospel of life. Praise God for the fellowship of independent evangelical churches. Your fellowship is really important as we share with each other and hear with each other and talk with each other, do collaborate with each other over the gospel that holds us together. For the gospel is greater than any one of us. And the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any one church that we're in. We now need to be working with each other as we can. And so the instruction for Titus is that people need to learn to devote themselves to good works. That's Christian devotion, good works. For that is our calling, brothers and sisters. We are to be Christ's people, chapter 2, 14, redeemed to be good works. Verse 8 of chapter 3, washed and regenerated that we may devote ourselves to good works. And here in verse 14, learn 
to devote ourselves to good works. One of the big problems in this whole religious discrimination, legislation, etc. Christianity cannot be locked up in church buildings, cannot be locked up in church churches in church school in, in public schools. Christianity can't be locked up because it is us. Everything we do is Christian. The Prime Minister claims to be Christian. He can't leave his Christianity outside the door of Parliament House. If his Christianity is genuine and real, his Christianity must be inside the Parliament. There's no idea that you can suddenly take off your Christian element and not be Christian. But if he is truly Christian, he'll be concerned for what is just and right because that's the second of the three things he's being trained in. And he'll be trained in wisdom because that is the first of the things, to live his life self-controlled. And so the instruction here is that we are to devote ourselves to these good works. Our changed behaviour is not an optional extra. Our commitment to doing good is not an optional extra. The Cretans professed to know God, by, but their works denied it. Faith without works is not faith at all. As James would call it, dead. It's not faith. Remember Jesus' terrible condemnation at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He's not saved by doing the will of his Father, by doing good works. But because he is saved, he will be doing the works of his father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, become members of the fellowship of evangelical churches in your name, start planting churches in your name, and then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It's not your Christian activities. It's not your prophecy, your miracles or anything else that saves you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who transforms you into a person who is devoted to good works. That's our primary devotion is the good works. Our people, as Paul calls them here, must devote themselves to good works. They have to learn to do this. It's not automatic though they can learn to do it because the Spirit produces fruit in us. So we have to teach them by word and example. And that is the very practical nature of the good works that Paul has in mind here. Verse 13, that the gospel workers lack nothing. Verse 14, that they help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's not the love that professes itself, but it's the love who acts and does things helping other persons, especially those who love the apostle and his message. The good works are an essential expression of the change. I told you about this Muslim man who came and told me about living in Australia and how degenerate it was and how Islam was superior to Christianity. I didn't tell you the second half of that story. It's a very lovely part because he came to talk to me because he, he lived in New College at New South Wales University and he got very sick. And while he was there, he discovered something that was extraordinary. blew his mind, really, because there were a group of students there who really cared for him, who looked after him, took food to him, organised for notes to be taken in his class, went and, went and spoke to his lecturers on his behalf, wrote to his family. They did all kinds of things. And as he lay there in his sickness inside New College, he started to pay attention to which students did it. 
And they were the Bible study group. And the penny started to drop that Australians aren't Christians, but there are Christians in Australia. And these Christians in Australia were doing things more than any Muslim had ever seen. And so he came to me to find out about becoming a Christian because he saw their devotion to good works, a devotion to good works that comes from the heart that had been regenerated by the gospel. Titus is a great book. What's its key take-home message? The gospel in a difficult place, well, that's us, must be taught clearly, straightforwardly, must be taught while error is opposed and people rebuked. So it must be taught without compromise. Taught by both Titus the gospel worker, and the overseers of, of the Christians that are he appoints in every town. And this means teaching the sound doctrine of salvation. But it also means teaching the ethical moral consequences of that without getting them confused. It's a problem for us, isn't it? The more I teach ethical consequences, the more people are hearing me saying, you're saved by good works. So I've got to keep on teaching the ethical consequences of being saved by grace so that people will be saved by grace and not confused by the morality that flows out of Christianity. And it really needs to be taught to all sorts and conditions of humanity old and young, men and women, slaves and free, whoever, because our Lord and Saviour is the Saviour of all sorts and conditions of humanity. Because we're not saved by good works. We're saved by the grace of God in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us keep, my friends, believing it, living it, and preaching it. Because if you believe it without preaching it, you're not believing it. And if you believe it without living it, you're not believing it. So let us keep making this clear all the time that we're saved by grace. And let us teach our people that the grace that saves us transforms us. That's why that little passage, I said it's important to get the tenses of the verb right. In chapter 2, verse 11, that having renounced evil and unworldly pressures, grace now trains us. There's a big distinction between those who are regenerate and those who are not. And while it's the same gospel you need to preach to both, it has two different effects. The gospel to the unregenerate saves them. The gospel to the regenerate trains us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace, your generosity in sending him, giving him so freely for our salvation. At such cost was your generosity. We thank you for your grace, Father. And we thank you for his grace in willingly taking on your commission 
to die for us. We thank you, Father, that he completed it fully, such that death could not hold him, but he rose for sins being, being fully forgiven and Satan being completely conquered. And that he poured out his spirit, Father, upon us, that as the gospel word was preached to us, you opened our hearts to believe. And we do thank you, Father, for your whole work in saving us. Help us, Father, to so live by your gospel of grace that your spirit would do this continuing work of transforming us into the people that Christ wanted us to be, that Christ redeemed us to be, into those people who are devoted to good works. And we pray for this transforming work in our lives in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Let's sing of the gift of grace together. Sure, the pr- 
saved by grace alone so we believe it we live it and we preach it because it's only that grace given by the Lord Jesus Christ that can save us and transform us and our fellow Australians now what a word of encouragement from a wise old man is that that's not confusing is it Philip a wise old man So I've been given special instructions that I need to call Philip and Helen out the front, the two living treasures, to thank them. And while they're coming, we know that you have just discharged your duties as faithful servants of Christ, but we can't help but thank you and thank God for the gift that you have been to us and to the church, and to the nation of Australia and the world for the last 50 years. So please join with me and thank them. Helen is embarrassed and... and I'm going to get into trouble. But last week, 
No, two weeks ago, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. And so you now understand she truly is a great woman. 50 years of me. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) So we're now going to turn to our prayer groups. Uh, But before that, Dean's just asked me to give you a brief picture of the workshops. And so... As I do this, it would be really great if you looked up on your device, fiec.live. You can go straight to the URL if you don't want to do the other little way of doing it through the QR code. Uh, He wants me to make special mention of a couple of workshops uh, because it would be really good if you looked at this afternoon as well as this morning so that you can actually really thoughtfully uh, choose which ones are going to be the wisest thing for you and your team to scatter around. Uh, the reason I say this um, is because some, the one workshop, the ministry marriages, that will be repeated. So you can sort that out. And there'll be a great workshop this afternoon that's, it's fairly fundamental for us as a body of the FIEC. Uh, Dave and Ruth Sheath are leading a seminar this afternoon about wedding and funerals. And they have written for us a service, uh, a God-honouring service that really truly celebrates the diversity of what it means to be a man and a woman and to be united in marriage. And so this will be really good for celebrants and prospective celebrants. So, And this one will be at 4.30. So look ahead, see if that's helpful for you and your team as you make a decision about this morning. So I've mentioned the ministry marriages one. That's Keith and Sarah Condy. That will be in Waratah. They are thinking about the particular uh, pressures on us in ministry. The second one uh, that you might want to consider, which is is an issue we need to respond to well, is that of domestic violence. And Shane Gill, he is actually... um, a family and criminal lawyer, but he's actually been working in the Solomon Islands to really help them think about how to change the culture where family violence, domestic violence is so endemic in the population and in the church. And uh, I don't know if your church is like ours, but that has been our increasing experience. Now, this is a trigger alert. So if you have had some experience with domestic violence that talking about these experiences would make you uncomfortable. Maybe maybe it's wise not for you to be the one who's in that workshop. But ultimately, we want to learn to love the vulnerable. So that's why we're doing that one. Uh, now, that will be in the top meeting room of Arcacia. So if you haven't been to the Arcacia building, it's like the furthest accommodation block. You're up the main stairs. Is this right, Dean? Oh, that one's on the bottom. So what about the one tailoring evangelism? So on the bottom level too. Okay, so let's get that right. The first lounge room, the bigger one, is where um, the responding to domestic violence will be. But if you keep going along that corridor, you'll get to tailoring evangelism. How do we develop an evangelistic culture in our church? Then there's leading change here in the auditorium. That might be a trigger alert as well. Some people don't like change. But... (laughs) We do need to think about it. We need to assess its impact. We need to communicate well, and we need to learn how to do this with wisdom. 
And the last one is growing a singing church just over here at Waratah. And that will be a great blessing to hear some of Treasure, Trevor Hodges' um, wisdom about uh, singing and helping the Word of God to dwell in us richly. He's a judge. Yeah, yeah, it's a real, real gift to have him among us. So he's a judge. <clears throat> Better get that right. <clears throat> so uh, we've been talking um, a lot about uh, growing in our love and good deeds this morning, the outworking of the gospel in our hearts. So that would be a great thing to pray about, wouldn't it? The other thing I was thinking, you know, on the first night we talked about how our conviction of the gospel must shape our character. And Macca got us to write a prayer um, about how we want God to grow our characters, to transform us. So that would be a really good thing also to share in your prayer groups. So let me get you off straight to prayer now, then morning tea, then seminars. Thank you.